is that uh, okay? There we go. Let me say a. Uh, let me please keep your Bible open to Matthew chapter twenty-seven, if you would. And I want to say a special word of welcome to those of you who are joining us via the live stream. We are so glad that you are worshiping with us today. Before we actually kind of turn our attention fully to this passage of Scripture which is in front of us, I want to uh, remind you of just kind of one thing that's going on in church family life right now. Uh, just one brief reminder that uh, if you are a part of this church family, if you've made a commitment of membership in this church family, uh, then you should have received an email this week inviting you to nominate uh, people who you believe would serve well as elders. And um, I just want to underscore that and say, if you're a part of this church family, if you've made the commitment of membership and you didn't receive that email, feel free to reach out to us at the church office. We'd love to try to get that to you. And I'd also like to underscore that simply to say, we really sent that to you because we really want your participation in this. Um, uh, my, my friend Todd Spencer pointed out to me recently that uh, one of the benefits of involving the congregation in thinking about uh, future leadership is that many different gifts of the Spirit can get involved in that way. And so whether that's gifts of kind of a word of wisdom kind of thing, or whether there's a gift of discernment of some sort, or other kinds of gifts, other kinds of perspectives, uh, I really want to encourage you to prayerfully consider how God might be leading us together and how he might use your gifts, your insights, your perspective to help steer things forward. And so I want to underscore that's out there, that's happening, and we really are inviting you to participate because we really value your participation in that elder nomination process. So have I said enough about that here? Are we tired of hearing about elders? Um, let's turn our attention to Matthew chapter 27. When we think about the message of Christianity, there's nothing more central than this. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins. This is the central message of our faith. And sometimes when we think about this fact that Christ died for our sins, we process that primarily in the sense of thinking about the fact that we know we are guilty. We know that we are guilty of sins and transgressions and our consciences tell us that we're guilty. And there's something inside of us that longs for that kind of cleanness, that clear conscience. There's something in us that longs for that. And certainly the message that Christ died for our sins, it speaks to precisely that. It offers a way for us to have our sin and guilt and shame removed, forgiven as far as east from west by God. But you know, when we say that Christ died for our sins, the message actually reaches much wider than just my own conscience. It reaches much wider than just my own sense of guilt and shame. 
The death of Jesus Christ on the cross is God's solution to the greatest problems in all of humanity. The cross of Jesus Christ is the climax of the story of redemption. You think of the great problems that we face as humanity, as introduced in the Bible's storyline, this sense of distance from God that we all feel. Why does God seem so distant? How can we know our Maker? This problem of death. This problem of death which we try very hard to hide ourselves from. Which we try very hard to ignore and stay away from. But this problem of death that kind of hounds each one of us throughout our lives. These profound issues of division with one another. These issues of distance from God, death, division from one another in a profound way, are met by this central message of Christianity that Christ died for our sins. And as we draw near to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ today in this text, and as we draw near to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ throughout this holy week with services on Good Friday and Easter, I want to encourage us to slow down and pay attention to Jesus. There's an interesting little detail here in our passage. After the soldiers had crucified Jesus, verse 36 says, they sat down and kept watch over him. In a similar way today and throughout this week, I want to invite us to sit down And watch carefully. To sit down and slow down and pay attention to the death of Jesus Christ and what it means. I won't comment on every verse that was read here in our passage today, but in the second half of this text, there is a series of ironic insults that are cast at Jesus. It's interesting the way that Matthew draws our attention to what's really going on on the cross. When Mel Gibson went to make a film about the cross of Jesus Christ, he drew attention especially to the gory details. The nails. The blood dripping. The flesh ripped open. And to be sure, the gory details are a part of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But interestingly, none of the gospel writers in the New Testament spend very much time drawing out the gory details of the cross. They draw our attention, each in unique and individual ways, to the theological significance of the cross. And one of the ways that Matthew draws our attention to the theological significance of the cross is through the use of irony. Through the use of these ironic or kind of contrary to the way we would expect, contrary to fact statements that come as insults 
cast at Jesus Christ while he is suffering and dying on the cross. Let me draw your attention to three of these ironic insults here in this passage as Jesus is dying on the cross. Ironic insult number one is found in verse 40. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. This ironic insult comes from those who are passing by. People who are simply journeying past the place of Jesus' public execution are shouting out in mockery at Him. And their mockery has to do with this idea that Jesus had at one time said that He could destroy the temple and rebuild it in only three days. Which is an astonishing claim. No matter what building we're talking about, right? We don't even have to be talking about the magnificent architectural accomplishment that was the second temple in Jesus' day. We don't even need to be talking about that magnificent, uh, that magnificent architectural accomplishment to realize that for Jesus to say, I will tear down a building and I'll rebuild it in only three days is kind of a remarkable statement for Jesus to make. In fact, beyond that, it was a dangerous statement for Jesus to make. It was open to being easily misunderstood as a statement of some kind of terrorism. Especially in Roman society. One of the things that was unique about the way that the Roman Empire expanded and conquered various places is that it was a radically pluralistic empire. Sometimes we think that Christianity is facing pluralism in our world for the first time today. Not at all true. Christianity, in terms of Jesus' message, was born into a world defined by pluralism, by cultural and religious pluralism. And one of the ways that the Roman people maintained this atmosphere of religious pluralism is they figured if we conquer a people, one of the ways we can keep them calm and keep them liking us is to make sure nobody messes with their temples or their idols. And so actually one of the main offenses that you could commit in the Roman Empire was to desecrate a temple. Why? Because desecrating a temple very often led to riots. And the Romans didn't like riots. And so they made it a high capital offense to desecrate a temple. So Jesus comes along and in Jerusalem he says, go ahead, I I can destroy this temple and I could rebuild it in three days. Go ahead, take down this temple. It will only take me three days to restore the temple. And in the Roman society, what ended up happening is people said, that's terrorist language, tearing down a temple. In fact, I don't know if you remember this, three weeks ago when we read the account of Jesus' trial before Pilate in the book of Matthew, this is one of the charges that is brought against Jesus. He said he'd destroy the temple. That's against Roman law. You should crucify him for saying something like that. Of course, that interpretation of what Jesus was saying was radically misguided. Far from being a statement of terrorism, Jesus was making a statement about what his mission was, what he came to accomplish. 
And in order to understand that, we need to understand what a temple is. In the simplest description possible, a temple is where people go to meet God. And when Jesus is saying, tear down this stone temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days, Jesus is saying, I will create a whole new way for people to meet God. In fact, the Gospels make clear this is exactly what Jesus had meant. John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his own body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see, this insult is ironic because they think that they've got Jesus pinned in a corner in a particular way. You say that you have so much power that you could rebuild the temple in three days and you can't even rescue yourself from your death on the cross. But throughout this passage, what happens is that these ironic insults actually give way to ironic insights into what Jesus himself came to accomplish. They give us ironic insights into what was happening precisely by Jesus not taking himself down from the cross. You see, the kind of temple that Jesus was reestablishing was not a temple that could be built simply with brick and mortar. The kind of meeting between people and God that Jesus was rebuilding and reestablishing, in fact, could only be accomplished through Him remaining on the cross all the way to the bitter end. And then dying. And then being buried. And then being being risen from the grave. In fact, at the pinnacle of the story of redemption in the Bible, After Jesus Christ is crucified, when He has said His last words and breathed His last and yielded up His Spirit, Matthew chapter 27 verse 51 tells us that through His death, this is what happened. Verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. From top to bottom. That curtain which represented a separation between God's own dear presence and the people. Through the death of Jesus Christ, that curtain that represented the distance between God and humanity, the separation between us and our Maker, that curtain is torn in two through the death of Jesus So this ironic insult gives way to this ironic insight. Since Jesus is the temple rebuilder, we are called to draw near to God through Him. 
We are called to come and meet with God, not merely in a stone temple, not merely in a place of worship. We are called to draw near and meet with God himself through Jesus Christ. The new temple, the new meeting place between God and humanity is established precisely by Jesus dying for our sins. And so tearing into that curtain that once separated us from our God. This is the first call of this passage. Since Jesus is truly the temple rebuilder, let's draw near to God through him. The second ironic insult in this passage comes in verse 42. Now it's not just the passers-by. Now it's the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the religious leaders who have their ironic insults to hurl at Jesus as he is hanging on the cross and slowly dying. Verse 42 says, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Then let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Here again, this insult which is hurled at Jesus on the cross is ironic. They think they're being cute and clever. Jesus is the one who saves other people. He can't even save himself. But once again, as we'll see, the irony goes much further than the religious leaders realize as they insult this man who is slowly dying on the cross. The book of Matthew has mentioned a number of times the saving work of Jesus. Matthew's gospel begins in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 with the statement, before Jesus is even born... The declaration about this child saying she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, which by the way means something like the Lord saves. You shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So from Matthew chapter one on, we are aware as readers that his mission in this world is precisely a saving mission. He's come to save his people from their sins. How is he going to do it? It's interesting that the very next time we read about the saving work of Jesus, there's kind of a different connotation to this idea of saving. The next time we read about the saving work of Jesus in Matthew's gospel is when the disciples are in a boat in the storm. You know this familiar scene? And Jesus is asleep and the storm is raging. It's raging so badly that professional fishermen like John and Peter and others who have spent their lives on the sea and made their livelihood out at sea, they begin to despair of life itself. They're convinced this boat is going to capsize. We're gone for sure in this storm. And when they wake Jesus up, according to Matthew chapter 8, verse 25, they say, Save us, Lord, for we are dying. This idea of salvation, which we usually cast in terms of Jesus saves us from our sins, 
Let me put this a different way. You know, sometimes we talk about being saved. And R.C. Sproul famously asked the question, are you saved? Good. Saved from what? It's important to know. Saved from what? And one of the ways that the Bible answers that question is to say that each one of us really does need to be saved from death. Death is a result of sin. Death is the judgment of God on our rebellion. Death is not a natural outcome of life. It's a consequence of sin. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so when we see loved ones die, or as we feel ourselves slowly dying, arthritis in my knee, (laughs) just a little reminder, this world isn't working the way it's supposed to be. When we see our friends die, when we feel death creeping up slowly inside us, when we see it all around us, we are right to hate death. And we are right to feel deeply and profoundly in our souls, I want to be rescued from death. We're right to want that because it's not the way it's supposed to be. And now the religious leaders walking by Jesus at the cross, watching Him experiencing death Himself, experiencing the powers of death getting a grip on His soul even though He had no sin, even though He was sinless. As the religious leaders see Jesus experiencing death, dying, perishing on the cross. They cry out about this idea of the need for salvation. They say that He saved other people. He can't even save Himself from dying. But here's where they speak better than they know. Here's where their ironic insult gives way to an ironic insight once again. It is precisely by dying on the cross for our sins that Jesus will defeat the powers of death once for all time. It's precisely by not coming down off the cross. It's precisely by entering all the way into the grave that Jesus defeats the enemy of death for us. And so... After Jesus' heart stops beating, when He breathes His last and He gives up His Spirit, there's this kind of apocalyptic scene that unfolds in Matthew chapter 27, just a few paragraphs after what we're reading right now. When Jesus dies, picking up again in verse 51, it says, And the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened. Now, I want to say, I don't understand everything that's going on here as the tombs are opened up momentarily in Matthew chapter 27. But what I can tell you is this. Matthew wants us to be crystal clear that in his death, Jesus defeated death. Do you see what I'm saying? 
By his death, death was defeated. That's what Matthew wants us to see clearly. The cross of Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross for our sins, he was setting us free to the slavery we have each experienced, to the powers of death. And so this is the second ironic insight that this brings us to. Since Jesus is truly able to save from death, let's rejoice in His victory. What does that look like to rejoice in His victory? Some of you have heard the name of Dwight L. Moody. There's a school named after him in Chicago. Do we have any Moody people here in this service? You can fist in the air with pride. There you go. Um, Dwight L. Moody was a famous preacher in the 19th century. So famous that he has schools named after him and things like that. Of all the things I've heard from Moody, this one might be my personal favorite. Dwight Moody once pointed out, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East, North, uh, East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? <laughs> At that moment, he said, I shall be more alive than I am right now. That's somebody who understands that Christ has defeated death for us. This this is the testimony of somebody who understands that for all who trust in Him, though He die, yet shall He live. As Jesus Himself explained it, right? Right? And so you can go ahead, if you're somebody who has trusted in Jesus, if you've entrusted your soul and your future to Jesus Christ, you can go ahead and fill in your own name in that as well. Someday you'll read in a blog post, or or someday you'll read on Facebook that Josh Fenska has died. Don't believe a word of it. At that moment, I'll be more alive than I've ever been. Go ahead and substitute your own name in there if you've trusted in Christ. Someday others will be looking at their Facebook feed and they'll be saying, how sad. My friend so-and-so has passed away. You can clap your hands and rejoice. And listen, I'm not taking sin or I'm not taking death lightly. Jesus wept in the face of death. And when we face death, we should rightly weep as well. You're tracking with me? I'm not taking death lightly. But the thing is, I'm taking the death of Jesus more seriously than my own death. When we come to the cross of Jesus Christ, we learn a whole new perspective of of death and its powers. We learn a whole new perspective, which is echoed in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul, who respects death, He understands the sadness and the grief of losing a loved one. He talks in his letters about the sorrow upon sorrow that comes to us when loved ones die. He's not being flippant about death. And yet, look at how he teaches us to taunt death. Like a basketball player who just posterized another dude in the paint. He taunts death and says, Oh, death, where's your victory? What you got, death? Oh, death, where's your sting? You got nothing. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
You see, when we understand what was really happening in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, we won't take sin or death lightly. We'll see them actually judged for what they truly are, enemies. But we will learn to rejoice in victory. Rejoice in His victory on our behalf over these terrible enemies. Since Jesus is truly able to save from death, let's rejoice in His victory for us. That brings us to the third ironic insult as Jesus is hanging on the cross. As He's slowly dying, there's this third insult which is waged at Him in verse 43. The third insult goes something like this. He trusts in God. Let God deliver Him now if He even desires Him. (laughs) For He said... I am the Son of God. And we notice the, um, we notice what kind of pops out here, right? The enemies of Jesus understood full well that he had claimed to be the Son of God. One of the things that you might hear um, in a certain kind of religious history book or in a certain kind of college class on religion, is you might hear people saying, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. And we can open our Bibles and say His enemies certainly thought He did. You don't want to believe Jesus? You don't want to believe the followers of Jesus because they might be prone to make up stories about Jesus? Would you believe the enemies of Jesus who wanted Him killed? They understood that He had claimed to be the Son of God. In fact, they thought it was reason that He should be crucified. They thought it was reason to taunt Him there on the cross to point out, you think that you're the Son of God? You think that God loves you as His own Son? Then how on earth are you dying on a cross? How on earth are you dying in this shameful manner of execution right now? If God loved you as His Son, surely you would not be dying. In fact, it's not only kind of theological liberals who say things like this. This is one of the primary stumbling blocks for our Muslim friends. If the God loved Jesus, the God would not allow Jesus to suffer and die like this. That's what our Muslim friends teach in light of what they read in the Quran about Jesus. And so this issue actually turns out to be profoundly important. Is Jesus the Son of God? And if so, why is He dying on this God-forsaken cross. And the answer of the book of Matthew has clearly been, yes, He is the Son of God. You may know that in Matthew chapter 3, there's this memorable moment when Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptizer. John the baptizer dunks Jesus in the water and as he comes up out of the water, 
the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus. And the heavens open and a voice thunders out. And do you know what the voice says? It says, this is my Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then as the demons come into view throughout the Gospel of Matthew, they seem to know full well who Jesus is. Leave us alone, Son of God, they cry out in anguish. The disciples slowly seem to wake up to this and even declare in light of some of His miraculous works, truly this is the Son of God. But now he hangs on the God-forsaken cross. And instead of the heavens opening and the Spirit of God descending and the voice crying out with gladness, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, the sky is growing dark at this very moment. Jesus has cried out, Father, if there be any other way, And the response is silence. In this moment here at the God-forsaken cross, it appears that this man who has been shown to be the Son of God is left to die. And we find ourselves wondering why. I was looking at the way that the word Son of God is used, or the word, the term Son is used in Matthew's Gospel this week, and I saw perhaps a connection with this parable that Jesus told. A parable I have not often thought enough about. The parable goes like this in Matthew chapter 21. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. And put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and killed a third by stoning him. And again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. And Jesus explains the significance of the parable like this. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees, the very ones who will mock Jesus and say, He said He was the Son of God. 
When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. What's happening as Jesus is crucified and the religious leaders in Jerusalem mock him? What's happening is the kingdom of God is going global. The kingdom of God, which up until this point in the story of redemption has been held out and offered to people of a particular nation in the Middle East, the story of redemption is going global. The kingdom of God is being offered through the sacrifice of the Son to every nation on the planet. The kingdom of God is going global. And again, this is precisely emphasized as one of the results of the cross in Matthew's Gospel. After Jesus dies, when He breathes His last, when He gives up His Spirit, a few paragraphs later, we read this description of what happens in verse 54 when the centurion and those who were with Him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and they said, Truly, this was the Son of God. We drew attention to this last week. What a remarkable thing is happening here. Even though the religious leaders in Jerusalem reject Jesus, here dozens of Roman soldiers bow in homage to Jesus. Here dozens of Roman soldiers begin, dozens of Roman soldiers have eyes to perceive Truly, this man is the Son of God. What's happening is that the promise made to Abraham that every family on the earth would be blessed through Abraham's descendants, it's beginning to come to pass, particularly through this descendant of Abraham. Remember Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. This descendant of Abraham, through his death, is making a way for death to be defeated and tearing wide open the way to God for people from every tribe on this planet. And when we see that, one of the things that happens, I believe, is it teaches us to gain a new affection for our global family of faith that we participate in. It teaches us a new kind of affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ from different ethnic backgrounds at the ends of the earth and here nearby. We learn to see one another not primarily as different, But we learn to see one another from different ethnic backgrounds as brother and sister. A little side note on that. Even right now as we're gathered here with the Word of God open in front of us, an organization called the Asian American Christian Collective has gathered a number of people in downtown Chicago 
to draw attention to the fact that hostility against Asian Americans has skyrocketed over the last year. And to lament racism as a sin and to cry out for justice afresh. And here's what I want to point out is at the foot of the cross, we don't hear whether we're Asian or not. Or let me speak particularly to those of us who are not Asian. Let me put it that way. Those of us who are not of Asian descent, we don't hear about that and then say, well, that's good for them. We say this is a family matter for us when my brothers and sisters in Christ are grieving. Now, we can have different perspectives on economic solutions. We can have different perspectives on different social solutions for racism. But when we stand at the foot of the cross through which the way was made for people from every tribe to draw near to the Father, we gain a new kind of affection and appreciation for our brothers and sisters of different ethnicities. And we learn to view one another in the body of Christ, not primarily as different, but primarily as brother, sister, whatever ethnic background he or she may be from. Even more than that, as we see the cross of Jesus Christ, which has drawn the wise men or the sages from Asia, and it's drawn the Romans to worship from Europe, it's drawn in Simon from North Africa here in this passage that was read earlier, as the nations are gathering to worship the Son of God. One of the things that happens is we see that we are drawn to participate in the global mission that Jesus inaugurates. Remember where the book of Matthew ends. The book of Matthew ends with this statement from our crucified and risen and reigning Lord Jesus who gave Himself and, and died on the cross as a ransom for people from every tribe. It ends with this declaration of Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go make disciples in every culture. Go make disciples in every ethnicity. Go make disciples in every community. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, here's the third ironic insight that we Discover here in this passage, since Jesus truly is the Son of God, let's join this global movement of allegiance to Him. Since Jesus truly is the Son of God, let's join our lives to this international movement of allegiance and disciples making to Him. Since Jesus truly is the Son of God to whom is due allegiance in every part of the planet, then let's join our lives to this multi-ethnic movement of discipleship to Jesus. 
Why is Jesus slowly dying on the cross? The answer in a few words is that Christ died for our sins. But in that profound message of the death of Christ for our sins, we see already the dawning of a new day. The dawning of a new day that deals with this problem of our distance from God as the curtain is torn in two. We see the dawning of a new day with the defeat of death itself. And the promise of life and life everlasting. We see the dawning of a new day when division between people based on socioeconomic factors, the division that we experience and see around the world and across ages between people from different cultures and ethnicities and nations and tribes. We see the dawning of a new day. Because Christ died for our sins, we see the dawn of a new day. And we join our hearts and our lives in singing the praises of the Lamb who was slain. We join our hearts and our voices in singing this profound message that the curtain is torn in two. The dead really are raised to life and finished really is the victory cry. We join our hearts in crying out, Oh, to see our names written in the wounds. For through His suffering, we are free. Death is crushed to death and life is ours to live all one through His selfless love. This is the power of the cross. The Son of God slain for us. What a love. What a cost. Now we stand forgiven together at the foot of the cross.